as Jeremy said, my name is J.T. Kimball, um, and it is a pleasure to be sharing God's Word with you today. Uh, let me pray one more time before we get started. Lord, you are the creator of the universe, of everything, and there is nothing you can't do. Your glory, your majesty, your love, and your kindness far exceeds what we can even imagine. And I'm just so grateful that we can even experience and understand the small part that we do. Thank you for bringing us together here as a church. Thank you for bringing us here today. Lord, I pray that as we study your word today, that your truths and the riches of your mercy and grace would be made clear, that your, our hearts would be softened, our hearts would be touched, that we would feel convicted and spurred on toward glorifying you, toward righteousness, and toward loving and caring for one another. We know that your name is glorified in all things, God, and we're grateful that we can be part of that here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. So we are here are in the middle of a series about the church and how immensely important the church is, whether it's about unity in taking the sacraments, singing together, or loving one another. We've heard how we were meant to be one body as the church. Jeremy explained in the very first message in the series four weeks ago that Jesus prayed he pleaded three times in John chapter 17 that we would be one, that we would be unified as a church body. Being together in worship, service, and in love is a vital element of God's plan for our church, for the church in general. And a text that's been referenced previously in this series is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. We're going to read this now. And as we read it, I ask you to read it as a model for today. How should we be living? What is it that Risen Hope Church should look like? So starting with verse 42, Luke writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is... Uh, um, a truly remarkable passage, and I think I just say remarkable because I don't even know, I don't know if in words I can sometimes describe how glorious God is and what he's done through his church, but this is what it means to be the church, to be the bride of Christ. Like, think about how awesome that, that just, it is. Jeremy, Nikki, and Jacob have wonderfully touched on several of these aspects that were expressed here already, but these Christians were eating together every day, giving up any goals, desires, assets, that they had in order to serve and lift up others. They were seeking God's word, studying it, sharing it, and reveling in his word. And one of the results of their Christ-focused lives that they living together was that they had favor with all the people. The way that they were living their lives, treating one another, and treating others was so noticeable 
and inviting that the general population of Jerusalem just sought to join them. And this is amazing. And this is us, the church. Please don't just read over these verses as sort of a history. Ask God to help you live them out. We are the body of Christ, and he is the head of the church. Together, through the Holy Spirit, we glorify God and love others, which is our topic for today. How the body of Christ loves and serves the community together. This is not something that we do in isolation as individual good people, so to say. We do this corporately as one body. As we saw in Acts chapter 2, the church was not isolated or sequestered away from the community. Instead, their lives and actions were deeply intertwined with those around them. In verse 47, we see two things listed about the church's relationship with the city. We see that the church had favor with all people, and we see that the Lord was adding people to the church every day. Those two things are interconnected. They're very related. People were being brought to Jesus because of how God was working through the church. The community felt loved and cared for, and they saw a group of people that were living in a way that was very, very compelling. God didn't have his people hide their love for him and others. He had them live it out publicly. That's how he chose to grow his church, through the love shown by his people. So please turn your Bibles or use your phones to navigate to the book of Titus, which is where we're going to be spending most of our time today. One of the things that the book of Titus provides is a basic set of instructions for how to be a church. In chapter 1, Paul uh, describes the cultural context of the island of Crete, which is where Titus was, and he gives Titus instructions on how to set up church leadership there in Crete. In chapter 2, he spends some time describing how Christians should interact with one another, and then in the third chapter, he spends some time explaining how the Christian church should be engaging with the broader community. It's that third chapter that we're going to be focusing on today here in Titus. Specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 of Titus 3. So starting with verse 1, we see that Paul writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. In looking at this passage, uh, we're going to start in the middle verses today. And these middle verses describe the foundation of everything via two contrasting realities. The first reality is the glory of Christ. And Paul contrasts that with our previous state, which is the state the world is in now. So Jesus is the foundation of all that we do. 
you may be aware that we have four pillars here at Risen Hope, and one of them is the centrality of Christ. We don't have this pillar as a formality, and I'm not just mentioning this in the sermon today because it's part of like a formula for good sermons. I'm bringing this up because everything I say today is worthless if Christ is not the foundation of it. If we aren't anchored in Christ, where is our love for our neighbors coming from? And how can we have joy overflow from our lives if it's not Christ giving it to us? Let's read verses 4 through 7 again to really focus in on this. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a gift that I feel is nearly um, beyond comprehension. The goodness and loving kindness of God, Jesus, he appeared and our lives changed forever. Because of Jesus' dissension from heaven, his life, death, and resurrection, we see that we are now regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit, and we are heirs to his kingdom. We are a new creation, and we've been completely, completely changed. And because we've received this gift, the loving kindness of God, there is only one possible response that we can have. And that one response is uncontainable joy. There is no other satisfactory response to this gift. In, uh, Peter tells us this. In 1 Peter 1.8, he writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So even though we haven't seen Jesus, we love him for what he has done for us. And the only response we can have from our true heartfelt belief is inexpressible joy. For myself, the way I think about this, like maybe you felt an emotion so strongly that you couldn't adequately express it with your words or body. It was just like you were shaking or blabbering because you didn't know what to do. Maybe it was an anger that was all-consuming or a grief that was just overwhelming and overtook your life or a happiness that you couldn't contain. I think any of us with babies have seen this, like a joy that they don't know what to do, so they shake their arms and babble. Like, this, is, this is what it means to be a Christian. Our whole life is consumed by a joy that cannot adequately be expressed by our mortal bodies. But that doesn't mean that we don't try to express it. On the contrary, God's given us very clear patterns for how to express this joy. At its very simplest, he tells us to love God and to love others. And this is something that Jacob reminded us of very well last week, that these are the two greatest commandments. We love God by seeking and obeying him. We seek him through reading his word, praying to him, and by gathering together. We obey him by doing these things and loving others, lifting their needs above ours. There's a key point here I haven't fully touched on yet, though, and it's that this is not an individual calling. If we are just good people in isolation, we're not fulfilling all that Christ has called us to. We are a church body with Christ as the head. We are meant to live and work in unison collectively as a group pursuing what Christ the head instructs us all to do. In these verses in Titus, we see that because of Christ, we 
as a group, have become heirs. We are co-heirs to the kingdom of heaven, and we're part of a body, a family of faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, Paul writes about this. He tells the Ephesian church that you are, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we've all been individually changed from the inside out, but we've also been changed collectively. We have been knit together. We are growing together into a holy temple for the Lord. And so all that we read in Titus 3 and that we're going to be talking about applies to the individual person. Um, but it's also required for the whole body, for these commands to really be true. It's an ask that Jesus has on all of us, not just an ask, a command. So the author of Titus, Paul, he was giving these instructions to a group of people. He expected them to be lived out together because this is what Christ desires from us. To be a Christian is to be adopted into a new family. This adoption and this new family should and will radically change your life as you do things in concert and in unison with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And all that's been described here is stands in stark contrast. This glorious unity is just so different from what we read in verse number 3 of Titus 3. Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's like as far as Jesus as you can get, what Paul just described right there. And that's where we started. We were in a, a pit of foolishness and disobedience. We were chained to desires and pleasures that did nothing but, they, but serve ourselves. We were not living a life in unity as part of a body, but we had a singular focus, and it was us. This is where the world is at today, whether it's our neighbors, or our coworkers, perhaps even our family members. They are foolish, disobedient, led astray, and slaves to various passions and desires. Just like we were blind to the fact that we were in this, we were in this state, so our neighbors are as well. However, the reality of the goodness and loving kindness of Jesus is powerful and compelling, if they can see it. C.S. Lewis has a book called The Weight of Glory, and he describes the situation this way in that book. He says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Mud pies in the slums sounds like a lot of fun when you have no idea about the joy of the coast and the ocean. But when the reality of something greater is presented and made clear to you, your desires, they change. This is how it is to the world. Until they have seen the reality of a Christ-filled life, what they have seems fantastic. It seems great. Paul tells us in those Titus verses that our lives were changed because of, changed when the goodness and the loving kindness of Jesus appeared. And praise God for that. Hallelujah. And I've experienced this so, so deeply. I used to find so much joy, like way beyond what was appropriate in things like personal finance or watching football. 
uh, but Christ has transformed me. And those things are fine. I still, I still enjoy them. But Jesus and his church are great. It doesn't even compare. And since I've experienced this transformation, my heart yearns for all those around me to experience a very similar transformation. So how can our neighbors experience this? One of the primary ways that God has planned for them to experience this is through the way that we, as the church, love and care for them. And this is shown several times early on in Acts. We see how early Christians lived in Jerusalem and how all their actions were good, profitable, and welcoming to all people, causing the church to grow in number and in love for God. Paul was almost certainly in Jerusalem at this time, learning and studying and growing, and he would have seen the Christian movement grow and flourish around him. So when Paul uses verses 1, 2, and 8 here in this section of Titus 3 to tell the Cretan church how they should be behaving, it's not only based on his God-given wisdom, it's also patterned after what he observed from the church in Jerusalem. He connects these works of the church to Christ's love in verse 8. He writes, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So when he says, the saying is trustworthy, which saying is he referring to? It's verses 4 through 7, the verses preceding it, that Jesus has appeared, saved us, and called us into his family, given us eternal life. That saying is trustworthy. We can hang our lives on that saying. We can anchor everything to that and know that we will never, ever be let down. Therefore, because that saying is trustworthy, because Jesus did all this for us, we, the church, are to live lives devoted to good works, the things that are excellent and profitable for all people. We aren't to do them in our free time or when we get motivation. It is a priority for us to seek the welfare of others over ourselves. No matter who someone is or how they treat us or our church family, we, Risen Hope, are to live lives that are excellent and profitable for them. And the whole world is focused on their own success and ambitions. I see this every week at work. I'm, I'm, I'm pressured to focus on my own success and ambitions. But as a body of believers, we are drastically different than that because we're focused on the glory of God and the lifting up of others, not of ourselves. In Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses of the chapter, Paul spends some time describing Christ's humility and how we're supposed to emulate his humility and his love for others. So I'm going to read verses 2 through 8 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, uh, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see there at the beginning of that passage, we see a plea from Paul. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, 
being in full accord and of one mind. That's a plea for unity. Unity inwardly inside the church with one another and outwardly to the world. Together as a body, we are to humble ourselves, lifting up the needs of others above us. Just like Jesus humbled himself to lift up all of humanity, the church is to humble herself to lift up the community. Our community has very real needs. They're in pain, they're hungry, they're sad. We should meet those needs, and we should meet an even greater need to help them reconcile with their creator. To love them is to help them and to point them to Jesus. So based on what Paul's seen from the church in Jerusalem and in his travels across the Mediterranean and the God-given wisdom, intelligence, and insight he has, he gave the church in Crete seven instructions for how to glorify God and love their community through works that are excellent and profitable for all people. So we're going to read verses 1 and 2 of Titus 3 to see these seven instructions. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So these are commands that are written to the church as a whole and as a set of priorities and how to live. They certainly do apply to us individually, but this was meant to be true of us as a whole, as a church body. It's when we do this as a church, as Christians, that our testimony is most powerful. Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So while each command, such as the command to be gentle, applies to us individually, we're also, be, we're also to be collectively gentle as a church and encouraging one another to be gentle. There's a corporate accountability that's implied in Titus, but is made explicit throughout the Bible, such as these verses we just read here in Hebrews. Together, we are to hold each other accountable to these commands and encouraging each other and modeling this. So of, these, of the seven instructions that Paul writes in these verses, uh, I divided them into three categories. There are four commands that are all about how to treat others. Two commands are about the authorities that inform our actions, and there's one command about our readiness to help others. So when Paul thought about how Christians could best glorify God in the secular context of the island of Crete, these seven instructions made up the core of how Christians can show Christ's love to their community, both in word and in action. So I'm going to briefly explain what each of the seven instructions means for the church and for our community. The four, com- the four commands that Paul gives us for our relationship with others are gentleness, perfect courtesy, to avoid speaking evil of others, and to avoid quarreling. And if you dig into these, all of them hinge on the first of those four commands, to be gentle. Over and over and over again in the Bible, we are told to be gentle. For instance, in 1 Timothy 3, as Jeremy just read, which wasn't planned, that's awesome, we see that gentleness is a requirement for church elders. In James chapter 3, we are told that the wisdom from God is gentle. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul entreats himself to the Corinthian church by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And in Philippians 4, 
we're told to rejoice in the Lord and let our gentleness be known to everyone. Being gentle is not optional as Christians. We are to be marked by gentleness as a body of believers. We hear in the Bible about the life-giving power of gentleness. Deuteronomy 32 tells us that a hard rain destroys life, but a gentle rain gives life. Proverbs 15.4 says that a gentle tongue is a tree of life. And in Acts 27, we see that a gentle wind answers a sailor's prayer, but a violent wind spells trouble. So gently doesn't mean feebly. Instead, it means appropriately. Doing something gently is giving life, not taking life. Gentleness doesn't change what is delivered, such as the water, the wind, or words, as we just heard about in the Bible, but it changes how that it is delivered. And gentleness is especially necessary and meaningful when you're interacting from a position of power. The gentleness or lack thereof that you show is magnified by the power that you have. And we, the body of the church, we have a real power. We have the power of the living God. There is nothing quite like it. So what a difference we could make in the lives of those around us by displaying the gentleness and power of Christ together. So when we're told to show perfect courtesy to others, it's about understanding the context of the relationship and how to be gentle and polite in that context. When we're told to avoid speaking evil and quarreling, it's about having gentleness in how we speak about and to others, both inside and outside of the church. There's a whole segment of the population, some of them even proclaiming to be Christian, that seem to revel in celebrating the failures of others. That's, that's not us. That's not who we are. In Philippians chapter 2, we're instead instructed to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. The gentleness of the church is part of how we shine as lights in this world. But what does this mean specifically for the church, not just us as individuals? We do this collectively by encouraging, reminding, and demonstrating these things one to another. There are aspects of this that are certainly related to um, sanctification and each member of the church body growing in holiness and wisdom. But there are, also, these, like, these, there are also simple and practical things that we can ask ourselves. And this is just one, one example, but I'm going to give one instance. It's a question I ask myself, and I don't have the perfect answer, but I wanted to pose it to you all. What would it mean for us as Risen Hope to be gentle, courteous, and life-giving to these houses right behind me? They now have a church in their backyard every Saturday afternoon. And so when I thought about that, some questions I asked myself is, have we introduced ourselves? Have we talked to them about how our presence has possibly impacted them? As Jacob reminded us last week, we in the church all have gifts. We are all the church. It's not just church leadership that must be gentle, loving, and life-giving to the community. It's every one of us. We do this together. The next category of commands um, from Paul are around authorities, submission, and obedience. He first tells the Cretan church to submit to rulers and authorities. That's the first thing he says there in this chapter. And we're in a very, very divisive political climate. Depending on the year, the time of the year, or who you're talking to, if I were to tell you to be submissive to rulers and authorities, I may get different responses um, to, to that command. 
to the call to submit to our cities, our states, and our nation's leaders. But that doesn't change the command. When possible, we as the church should be striving for obedience to rulers, authorities, and to regulations. In some instances, you may find it hard to respect the ruler or the rules. This was really true when Paul wrote the letter. This is not unique to our time. It was 57 AD or so when Paul wrote this letter to Titus. And the emperor of Rome was Nero. You may have heard of him. This is the same emperor who burned Christians alive and systematically persecuted them. And he wasn't the only leader at that time that was hostile to Christians, as is made pretty clear throughout the book of Acts. Yet despite this context, Paul still gave this command to the church because he knew that submission and general obedience was glorifying to God. In 1 Peter 2.12, we're given some insight from Peter why this is the case. He writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Honoring the law, even if we don't like it, is a Christian thing to do. As a church, we should be collectively obeying the law and exhorting our church family to do the same, so that when we are examined and accused, non-believers will have nothing to hold against us, but instead will glorify God. Going back to the previous commands about gentleness and not speaking evil about others, it does us no good as a church to complain about leaders and regulations just because we might disagree about the situation or the politics of them. However, some of you may be asking yourself a question, and it's the right question to ask. But what about when a government commands us to do something that is antithetical to the gospel? Luckily, Paul addresses it with his very next command. He tells us to be obedient. And given that he just told us to be submissive to rulers and to authorities, it doesn't seem that Paul is referring a second time specifically to governments. Instead, this is a command about Christian obedience. Above all else, we are to obey God's commands and by proxy, the leadership of obedient servants like the elders in your church or that of your parents. So there are times when submission and obedience to the government may not be possible as a Christian. For instance, a person who refuses to comply with an unjust law, but who accepts the resulting punishment from the government is being submissive to worldly authorities, but obedient to God. Believers are called on to obey God even when the commands of God and men contradict. An example of this is in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles refused to stop preaching Jesus' name, even though they were commanded to by the high priests. However, in most cases, we are to comply with the laws and instructions of authority figures because it's God-glorifying. And this is something that should mark our church and we should be encouraging and exhorting one another to do. This brings us to the last command, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. It's the instruction to be ready for every good work. And this isn't about enumerating every single thing that's good, but rather it's about a posture and an attitude of readiness for good works. Are we as a church eager to help others? Are we humbly considering the good of the broader community before what would most help us right here? This posture of humility and serving others is exactly the example that Christ provided to, to us and it's one that's frankly foreign to the world. A church that's focused on Christ and lifting up others is impossible to ignore. As Luke observed in Acts chapter 2, the church was praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was being accomplished 
by collectively living with gentleness, obedience, and being prepared to do every good work for the community. So let's do that as Risen Hope, both in Kingsgate and in the communities that you live in. We are the light of the world, gentle, loving, and attractive to those who, quote-unquote, only know about mud pies, because we know about the vacation by the sea. As a church body, how are we gently, courteously, and humbly loving and doing every good work for our neighborhood? As I worked on this message, um, I was convicted in a lot of ways about how um, I and we could be doing this better. Uh, for instance, uh, this street over here. Do they know about us? A question I was asking myself was, have we even considered these people? Or are these just houses that we ignore on our way to worship the everlasting God? The sovereign God who put risen hope right here at this time today, and all those people right there, are we just to keep ignoring them? Let me confess to you that um, I used to not care about this at all. In 2009, Roxy and I moved here to the Seattle area, and we moved to Kingsgate in January of 2010. Uh, we really didn't like it here. The sky the sky's too close to the ground. The trees, they close in on you. Um, there are so many cars, and the people don't really smile that much compared to where we grew up. It all felt really oppressive, honestly. And we missed the open space and the simple life of the Midwest. We grumbled about living here, and we talked about moving somewhere with more sun. We were here for work, for my job, and the community was just a place that we happened to live. It was, a ran it was random and unimportant. It was a matter of convenience. And somewhere along the way, um, I can't pinpoint the time because it was a journey, but God started to change our hearts a lot. Maybe I didn't have to like Seattle, but I had to love Kingsgate. It was not optional. It was required. I could no longer in good conscience grumble about Seattle or ignore my neighbors. And honestly, it's glorious. I do love Kingsgate, and I thank God for that because it's awesome. I so enjoy loving Kingsgate. The people here are precious to God, and they should be precious to all of us. His plan for bringing them into his fold may be to use our church or your life. Our love for others could be precisely how God plans to save someone. And God willing, in a future message in this series, we're going to hear from Michael Dye about how we as a church serve the world via missions. And I'm so excited to hear about that. And in many ways, serving the community and the way we love the community is not completely different from how we love the world via missions. But there are a few differences, and one of the major differences is about our roles. With missions, there are those who send and those who go. In your community, there's only one option. God sent you. You're the one who's going. There is no other role. If you aren't going into your community arm in arm with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then we aren't, we aren't listening to God. I do not have a monopoly on dictating how we should love our community. There are many actions and ideas and postures and ways to love the community that are beyond my ideas or what I can even possibly do. But God has given me a, uh, a passion for this. And I'm going to um, list three ways that you can be united with your brothers and sisters in serving. So please make these a fabric, um, part of the fabric of your lives. 
These things are not an add-on to your life. These are part of the straight and narrow path that God has laid out for the church, for how we love where we live. The first one is God loves Kingscape. And maybe you've seen this in emails or you've heard it talked about, but you didn't know what it is. And that's totally fine. Um, here at Risen Hope, we don't believe it's an accident that we are in Kingsgate. Uh, God specifically planned for our church to be here. And he also planned for the seven other churches in Kingsgate to be part of this community. And he planned for the handful of pastors and ministry leaders that live in Kingsgate to live here as well. And for the hundreds, if not thousands, of Christians that live in Kingsgate that we don't even know. This is why we created God Loves Kingsgate. God loves this community. And a vital part, an essential part of his plan of his plan to show his glorious love and his mercy to Kingsgate is through the Christians that live here. Risen Hope has four pillars as a church. I mentioned that earlier. And these aren't just nice words. They're the foundation of all that we do. I mentioned the centrality of Christ. There's also sufficiency of scripture and family of faith. And the fourth one is love where you live. As a member of this church, I hope that this isn't a new message or something that you're, that you're surprised by this reality. Um, it's part of who we are. It's a foundation of this church. Before we even met the first time, these pillars were laid out saying, this is who we are. This is what we do. God Loves Kingsgate is a cross-church organization that strives to meet the worldly and spiritual needs of the people here in Kingsgate. Every month, there are prayer walks, a prayer meeting, various opportunities to serve the community through your time and money. And we don't do this under the name of Risen Hope or some other banner to lift up a person or a church. Our organization name is our statement, God Loves Kingsgate. This means that God loves you. Let us show you how he loves you. And just to tell you more about it, we've partnered closely with schools, with Kirkland Heights Apartments. We've bought hundreds of meals for families. We've sponsored multiple days of free laundry. We're, planning, we're even planning to start an English as a second language program for the community here so that they can both learn a valuable life skill and learn the gospel while they do so. The impact has been awesome so far, and we even um, recently won an award from John Muir Elementary. They gave us the Building Bridges Award for um, what we've been able to do for the community. But we desperately yearn for all of you and all of the Christians here in Kingsgate to join us. We've done all this with sometimes just one or two people supporting the activity. And honestly, that's kind of barely unity <laughs> or togetherness. Um, and it's easy for those who are helped to see this and think something like, Man, I am glad that Jeremy is so kind. And it's true, Jeremy is really kind. Jeremy's awesome. But if we show up over and over again as a body, it's no longer about Jeremy's kindness. It's about the collective gentleness and mercy of Christ and the church working together. So please, no matter where you live, realize that God has called you to Risen Hope, and God has called Risen Hope to serve Kingsgate. This is your community because it's where your church is located. If you want to know more, you can talk to myself or Roxy, Jeremy, Nikki, Jacob, Mackenzie, Rachel. You can go to the God Loves Kings 8 website or our social media pages, or you can send us a note. If you have any believing friends in the area or neighbors, invite them to be part of it as well. This is all about collectively loving the community. The second thing to do is to get connected with local churches and neighbors and believers, sorry, local churches and believers in your neighborhood. Some of you live in Kingsgate, but many of you don't. And no matter where you live, there are three things that are absolutely true about your neighborhood. One is that there are Christians in your community, besides you. Two, there are churches and ministries in your community. And three, there are people in your community who don't know Jesus. So find out what's happening in your neighborhood among other Christians 
and start loving your neighbors together. I've personally been astounded by the things that other Christians are doing around Kingsgate. I just a shock. I had no clue some of the things that were happening. And I firmly believe that God is moving in your neighborhood in ways that you don't know about. So God's doing things everywhere. And the more that you seek out your brothers and your sisters in your community, the more that you'll find ways to be united with them in serving and loving your community. So don't hesitate to reach out to other Christians in your neighborhood. Reach out to the churches in your neighborhood and ask them what local ministries or serving opportunities they have. There is a beautiful, beautiful glory found in the unity of serving alongside other believers. And the third, the third thing is to um, invite your sisters and brothers to join you in any serving that you're already doing. Perhaps you volunteer at a food bank, maybe you go on prayer walks, or you help a neighbor with yard work. Don't do it alone. Invite others in your church family or other believers in your neighborhood to come do it with you. Um, God has undoubtedly called you to good works in your community. Graciously invite others to come alongside you. And tell me about it. I would love to hear about what you're doing, and maybe I can even join you. There's a Christian cliche around doing life together. But it exists for a reason. We are to have fun together, to worship together, and to serve together. And one of the best and easiest ways to do this is to invite others into something you're already doing. You don't need some monumental effort to plan something new. You're already doing good things because God has already worked in your heart. As we talked about earlier, you've been transformed by Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. So undoubtedly, you are doing things to love others. Invite others into what you're doing. Do it arm in arm. We're going to finish today with a story from Acts chapter 6. What we see in Acts chapter 6 here is the, uh, the Greek-speaking Jews were being neglected when it came to passing out food to those in the community in Jerusalem. Uh, and specifically, specifically, the widows were being neglected. So this is an issue where the broader community was divided by ethnicity and by culture, and one group was being disadvantaged by the system of distribution. The early church solved this by coming together and creating a team of individuals who would ensure the fair and equitable distribution of food to those who were in need throughout the community. As a church, they didn't ignore the problem or defer to the local government. Instead, they as a body believers, body of believers, loved where they lived and solved it. And what happened after they solved it? Acts chapter 6 verse 7 tells us. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the church grew. Everyday citizens and priests alike came to love and know Jesus because of how the church came together to meet an obvious need in, and injustice in the community. It sounds an awful lot like the church we, we read earlier about in Acts chapter 2, and it's very consistent with the message that Paul gave to the Cretan church, love and serve the community. Tell them about Jesus because of what Jesus did for you. As we sing this next song and we prepare for communion, um, let's meditate on Hebrews 10 verses 23 through 25, which I read earlier. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So hold on to Jesus, and because of Jesus, meet with and encourage your church family 
toward love and toward good works. We're going to sing this next song together and then we'll take communion together before the final song. You can grab the single serve communion cups back there while we're singing um, if you do not have one yet. Let us pray. Lord, your glory is um, unending and incomprehensible. It knows no bounds. Our lives have been changed radically and meaningfully in ways that are both understood and in some ways that we don't even understand. And I'm just, I find myself just so eternally grateful for what you have done for each and every one of us in the church. Thank you for each and every one of my brothers and sisters for bringing them here. I pray that above all else, you would help us just hold on to and treasure Jesus. Your goodness and loving kindness appeared in our life and changed us. Let us every day just be filled with gratitude and joy and peace because of what you did. And because, because of that, because of the inexpressible joy we have, I pray that you would help us try to express that by grabbing one another and saying, let's go love others and show them and tell them about Jesus. I pray that you would give us wisdom, strength, insight, and just unending peace, love, and gentleness for those in our lives and those we have yet to meet and those in our community. We ask all these things in your son's glorious name.